Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast, where we bring together the best medical minds, thought leaders, scientists, patients, and caregivers to inform and inspire the spondylitis community. I'm your host, Jill Miller, living my best spa life, knowing that how we meet today has the power to change everything going forward. Our guest today is Dr. Aaron Arnold of Arnold Arthritis and Rheumatology. Dr. Arnold received her medical degree from University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, completed her residency training at University of Chicago, and her rheumatology fellowship at UCLA. She was the very first American rheumatologist to be trained in diagnostic and interventional musculoskeletal ultrasound during her fellowship at UCLA. She played an active role in the RRF and ACR, where she has served on the board of directors for both organizations. During her board membership, she was involved in the ACR's strategic planning meetings and multiple task forces for the ideal rheumatology practice. She has developed a unique ultrasound exam accredited by the AIUM to diagnose inflammatory and crystal-induced arthritis and to follow the patient's response to therapy. She is dedicated to providing innovative care to patients with arthritis in an optimistic, professional, and compassionate environment. Her approach to patient care emphasizes an aggressive approach to achieve remission, and she is also my rheumatologist for the last nine years. So welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Jill. You did a great job there with all those abbreviations and different (laughs) names. I'm learning. Uh, So you've been on this journey with me for the last nine years. And uh, I always think of you when I when I came in uh, that first day, I, I was in quite a state. And you were so kind and compassionate and listened to all the tears of the journey I had, which is not unlike a lot of other patients. So I'm very curious to know, uh, when you became a rheumatologist, what were you hoping to contribute to the patient communities you would serve? So I remember the day we met each other as well. And you are right. It's like a lot of the visits that I have with new patients in a similar situation to yours. When before I started my medical training, I was at the University of Illinois where I was an English major. And I decided to go to medical school and focus on the stories that patients told me. And I realized that although I maybe had to work a little bit harder when we were doing biochemistry or physiology or memorizing all the things that the science majors who were in school with me had learned so easily, that where I really excelled was being able to listen to patients and to hear the things they were saying to me and the things that they weren't saying to me. So when I started my medical career, what I hoped to be able to do was to give, create an environment where patients could be heard and really listen to their stories and help them understand how important their story was and how relevant it was to the care that they were receiving and to also allowing me to make a diagnosis. That's so interesting, right? Because the idea behind storytelling in general is that story is the power of human connection. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I'll just say to you, I find that sometimes I'm the first doctor that's actually let a patient tell their story. And when I meet a patient for the first time, I spend time going through things that they've put in to our medical record to make sure that we have some context to interpret their story in. But then I literally ask them to tell me a story. 
And you can tell for some patients, it's liberating to be able to share what they've been through or how they're feeling. Um, and, I, and I can see that. It's very liberating. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, I, I was here yesterday for an appointment. And on a rare occasion, you are running late. Uh, I will give you a 99.9% .9 on time uh, rating. Yesterday was a little late. And as I sat in the room, I thought to myself, someone must be in a lot of pain and need to talk. Mm -hmm. uh, and you always do that. So one of the things people in the community always are interested in is how can patients build a better and stronger relationship with their healthcare providers? So I mean, I think really the key is communication. And sometimes the people that you're engaging with are not always the best listeners. And one side to communicating is always listening. And so I strongly encourage patients when they're meeting with doctors that I've either sent them to because I need their help to really come in with a concise story. And sometimes that means even planning out kind of a script of what they're going to say, because then it, it leaves very little room to be interrupted and to make sure that you're, you're hitting all of the points that you want to hit. So I think it's important to make sure that someone you're listening to I mean, you're talking with is actually really listening to you. So the more prepared you can be for those meetings, the better off you'll be. That doesn't necessarily have to mean bringing in, you know, lots and lots of records for the doctor to try to piece together what the story is, but you can bring in supporting evidence to, to kind of enhance your story. But I always say to patients, you know, I'm sending you to this dermatologist and this is the question we have here is the story they need to hear about your rash so we can answer this question. In that vein, tell me more about the gap in diagnosis. It's estimated at a seven to 10 year mm -hmm. cycle. And do you think that goes to people not being heard? Correct. Or yes, no, and also um, our assumptions. So when people think of ankylosing spondylitis, they rarely think of women um, because how we are classically taught about the disease until very recently is the image that many of you might see when you go to look up ankylosing spondylitis of a gentleman who starts out straight and then slowly over the years becomes hunched over and fused. And so healthcare providers you know, are only as good as their training and continuing education. And there's been not until very recently an understanding of this illness, especially in women and in older people. So revisiting the idea that a diagnosis could have been missed in patients who are older. It's tricky because doctors have patterns for the ways that they look for people. Um, and ankylosing spondylitis patients really can have some very small features that are in common, but really it's, it's, it's many of them, it's a unique story. And so I think that most of the time it's because the person they're meeting with, whether it's a doctor or a physician's assistant or a nurse practitioner, might just know, not know some of the nuances of the stories that patients can get told. So in those patterns, should we be, in those patterns, does the data out there support the patterns of diagnosis? So what I would say to you is that I think the key things from a history standpoint, and maybe this is just a little bit more in detail what you're asking, are really the emphasis that most patients 
who have active inflammation in their spine and pelvis will have feel better with activity. Maybe not going out and running a marathon, but at least they'll notice that they actually feel better if they're up moving around compared to when they're totally still. And so that's a differentiation that patients can make for the physician. I feel better when I'm active and moving around compared to when I'm still. Because someone with mechanical back pain will typically describe, not everyone, but someone with back, mechanical back pain will say that I feel the best when I'm laying in my bed and I'm completely com still, which for most ankylosing spondylitis patients is an absolute nightmare. Right. And then the other piece of information that I think can be helpful is it might not be miraculous, but taking an anti-inflammatory, even over the counter, does give you relief. Whereas mechanical back pain, a dose of an anti-inflammatory typically is not that helpful. So those are two features that I um, that I um, always listen for. And then I, you know, just probe a little bit deeper. So I think if there were two historical pieces of information that patients could provide, that they might be able to say that I feel better moving around and I feel better even with a little bit of an anti-inflammatory. Interesting. So when, when I came to you, for example, I barely got out of bed a few hours a day. Uh, I couldn't pick up my children. Uh, we went through a diagnosis protocol, I assume, uh, blood tests. So what is the diagnosis protocol you work from and what is the hardest part about that in finding the disease? Right. Okay. So our tests are not a hundred percent. And I think that's the other nuance is physicians really have to learn how to marry what your story is and then what your test results are. It is not infrequent that we will meet people who by history um, and their response to therapies has ankylosing spondylitis, yet their MRIs might be normal of their sacroiliac joints, for example, imaging to look for inflammation in other joints might not show that inflammation, and their laboratory tests might not show that inflammation, and they might not carry a positive HLA-B27. Those are patients that we um, will still treat, but we might treat a little bit more conservatively, but still in the vein that they probably have a spondyloarthropathy, and typically those are patients that we're meeting earlier in their, in their course. Um, but most of our patients will have an in, a positive inflammatory marker, like an ESR or a high sensitivity CRP. Most of our patients will give the history of feeling better with anti-inflammatories. Many of our patients will have a positive HLA-B27, and many will have abnormal MRIs of the sacroiliac joints, for example. So we use whatever information is helpful we make note when information is not telling us what we're suspicious of and make decisions of treatment based on the the based on exactly that. So a patient, for example, with high levels of inflammation and an abnormal MRI and a positive HLA-B27, that's not a patient I'm going to treat with exercise and an anti-inflammatory and vitamins and diet. That's a patient that we're going to add to all of the interventions I've mentioned something like a biologic therapy. So a TNF inhibitor or an IL-17A inhibitor or a JAK inhibitor, for example. Whereas somebody who maybe doesn't have any of those markers, but has a very typical history, we're gonna address their pain with physical therapy, with diet, with vitamins, and probably an anti-inflammatory, but not yet a medication that suppresses their immune system. So one of the things I love about your approach is that you're more holistic. I've met physicians over the years who 
uh, if it's not a drug, they don't recommend it. And I find this very strange given what a lot of us are coming to find about natural ways to heal ourselves or a little more holistic. So how do you determine what lifestyle changes or what, what kind of comprehensive approach, right? From a, whether it's a biologic plus physical therapy, plus a vitamin protocol, how do you come to that determination and what kind of changes do you recommend to patients upon diagnosis? So all of the recommendations that I make to patients, and I always say, like, if I'm going to tell you something that I think is woo-woo, I'm going to, I'll tell you, hey, listen, this is woo-woo, but why don't you give it a try? Most of the recommendations that I make are actually based on data, and the data is out there to support things like physical therapy, like omega-3 fatty acids, like vitamin D to treat inflammation, like diet changes, focusing more on a Mediterranean diet. There's tons of data about the importance of sleep in our patients. And the way to get patients to sleep better is often to get them to exercise better and to eat a little bit differently. So I always describe to my patients that there's really this two-lane highway that we're driving down and that they're their emphasis has to be on the behavioral modifications that they can make. Like, how are they exercising? How are they sleeping? How are they eating? What vitamins are they taking? So that as we need medicines in the other lane, we can hopefully then also get you off of those medicines or use the lowest dose. These two lanes are essential to be moving together at the same speed. If you don't do all the behavioral changes and the diet changes, et cetera, the med- we're going to need more medication. So I see this play out all the time in my practice, but we also see it in the literature. And it's just literature you have to look for. When I went to UCLA at the time, the most lucrative clinic in the whole university system was the East-West Medicines Clinic. And so I decided to, while I was doing my rheumatology fellowship, do a fellowship in acupuncture. And at the beginning of my career, that is actually something that I practiced in tandem with rheumatology. What happened was there were too many patients who needed rheumatologic care. And so I started to connect with practitioners in the community who were acupuncturists. And then I also started working with people who were physical therapists. And then I also started paying attention to people who were giving nutritional advice and exercise advice, and then started looking for this information in the data. I don't encourage patients to pick one lane. I try to really get them to drive down the middle of both lanes, because I think the other thing, there are are several things that patients want. Patients want a definitive diagnosis, and it is in all of our human nature to want to know why something happened. In rheumatology, we can't always tell you why something happened or what to call it. That's hard and that's unsettling, but actually from a prognosis standpoint, that's a much better situation for many patients to be in. But the other people want thing people want is they want control. And so things that I can give you control of that only you can modify that I know are going to impact your care are things like, how are you sleeping? How are you eating? What pills are you taking, right? I can control or advise on what medications we push in, but then there's a lot of stuff that's out of our control. How are you going to respond to these interventions? What side effects are you going to have with these interventions? What are other things that are going to start happening in your life or your work, et cetera? So we try to wrap all of that in to give you 
um, the patient control, but also to make an impact on their disease with the least amount of medication. That's great. I talk with people a lot when they're newly diagnosed. And one of the things I always try to encourage them is to remember that you almost have to become, you have to steal yourself, right? Right. Once the diagnosis hits, you have to steal yourself and be prepared for battle because it oftentimes I think feels it, that way. It feels mm -hmm. that way. And for some of us, once we start a medication, it gets worse before it gets better when you mm -hmm. think it can't get any worse. Uh, but do you see that mindset can help to overcome a piece of the disease? A hundred percent. So I will tell you, um, my, in my opinion, my job is to provide hope, right? Really, that's what I do. Um, and to, and to empower people to be hopeful, right? Which I is important. Yeah. And it's important. And so when we interpret the data together, you know, you sat at visits with me, we want to look at data together. We want to understand it together. And then we do where some patients I'll say, you have to take my hand and jump with me. Like there's no other way to put this. And I know we've just now met only for the second time or the third time, but you have to just jump at a certain level. There's not that certainty always for us. And so I think if I can provide hope, if I can keep on providing encouragement, when patients um, believe in what they're doing and believe in themselves, they often will get better. And you see that, right? Why, do, why are there so many medicines that are placebo that work, right? Because we all wanna get better. We want things to work. And I see it in patients who come to me from another doctor where a medicine wasn't working and we started the same medicine and it works. And what's the difference is we're educating the patient, we're empowering the patient, we're trying to provide hope, right? And so I think it does, it lifts people up and people, when you're suffering and you're, you're, you're I don't wanna say damaged, but you feel damaged. And for a lot of the people who finally get to me with ankylosing spondylitis, they also are broken down because people have not listened to them and have not taken care of them. You know, my job is to embrace that and to give hope. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I think the first time I walked in here, I was taking eight different medications and I, I'll never forget you may not remember this, but you came in and I started this puddle on the floor and you got up and you walked out and it might've been, it was one of your nursing staff. And you said, can you just tell whoever's waiting? I'm going to be a little longer. Right. And you came back in and you said, here's what I think it is. We're going to do the tests and then we're going to try and fix you. Right. And I, I will never forget the day. And now I'm going to cry again. I'll never forget the day that you walked in after the testing and you said, you opened your laptop and you said, okay, so you do have ankylosing spondylitis. And then you paused and your eyes got teary. Mm -hmm. And you said, and I know what this means for a mom and a woman your age. And we're going to work together to get this under control. Mm -hmm. And it was hope. It was exactly what mm -hmm. it was. And I think you're humanizing the experience of rheumatology. Mm -hmm which is so critical because we, we get into data and we get into reports and bits and bites and we forget sometimes. Right. I have to live my life. I got to pick up my kids. Right. Right. I uh, get, go take a walk and feel good about it. Yeah. So what is, uh, 
What is the one thing you think is bright about the future for patients with AS? I mean, many things. Number one, um, the fact that there's a resurgence of energy about helping people in the healthcare field understand the disease, right? Um, and, and more and more people are now, you know, patients come to me and they've already had their HLA-B27 drawn or they've already had something tried or that's, that's new. Um, and that people are starting to think about it in different populations, women, older women and men, um, people who don't maybe have the typical story, um, but also all of the medications. So I am somebody who, um, I've always had a unique relationship with the representatives for the different drug companies because I've always said to them, I'm interested in the literature that you're publishing, but not really having you here in the office and telling us, you know, your bits and pieces, which they are very respectful of. I said, but I, I, I need your resources available to us, but I don't really reach out to drug companies. I don't do anything like that. I'm telling you this story because when Cosentix was ready to launch, we were literally calling the company Novartis and saying, who's our rep? Where do we get the drug? How do we prescribe it? Because I had so many patients who needed a new medication. I've never done that in my whole career. And now we're, we're, we're begging for a drug rep to come to the office. Now there's so many choices for us, right? We have Cosentix, we have Taltz, we have um, Rinvoke, we have Zelgians. There are other unique molecules that are being looked at. We have all of the TNF inhibitors. We have a better understanding of the importance of exercise and activity in the spa patients, right? We know how much disability plays a role in this specific illness compared to other inflammatory arthritis. We know how important it is to be aggressive up front to try to avoid the least amount of disability. So I think the resurgence in people's understanding um, and efforts to understand the disease and appreciate its unique presentations is very hopeful in my mind. And then all of the different medications that we have available. So for you, uh, from a patient perspective, what does micro success look like for a patient? And what does macro overall success for the population who has AS look like? So it depends on what kind of AS patient. And we have this conversation a lot. If, if you're newly symptomatic within the next, last six months and getting to, miraculously getting to me and I'm aggressively getting you on a biologic, my expectation is little pain. Maybe not no pain, but little pain. If your journey has been nine years and people have already been touching you and doing stuff to your spine that they shouldn't have been doing, my expectation is we're going to prevent further progression and we're going to relieve some, we're going to make the inflammation go away. How much pain relief we get out of that is a different question. And that's where we're going to pull in other modalities like aggressively doing physical therapy, maybe specifically doing pelvic floor work working with pain management to get people on better medications, introducing medicines that modulate the nerves like gabapentin, really being aggressive about natural interventions, right? So the people with the disease has been going on for longer. Those are the harder patients to get as good of pain relief. Although I always say to people, my expectation is not no pain, it's pain relief, right? I mean, listen, I'm in my 50s and I have pain every day. And so I think that's a reminder that we're here. But what I don't have is horrendous, disabling, inflammatory pain. And that's what we have to try to put an end to with treatment. Agreed. 
Arnold or arthritis. Yeah, that's the, right. Where the, brand, where the brand promises hope for, <laughs> right. hope for pain relief. Right, exactly. Uh, so I guess in all that, do you see, do you, and I don't know how, if this is tracked or not, but do you see a higher rate of remission or patient success than a typical practice? Um, I don't have any way of comparing for that. Um, there is a big, at this point, I think we could, we might be able to say something like that in the future compared to other practices. We do um, have data on like what we're able to do with patients' BAS dyes and their, their actually their levels of inflammation. Um, but in comparison to other practices, that's not data that is available to me. Okay. This has been thrilling. <laughs> and I'm so happy to share you with well, this community you. because I appreciate it. I often tell people that you, you and some of the spider effect of where I got to probably saved my life. So mm -hmm. I am forever grateful for that. And I feel great. I'm probably more energetic than I was 20 years ago. Amazing, Certainly. It? Yeah, it's crazy. We'll see what else I can drop on top. Right. Um, but thank you so much for joining us yeah, today. Yeah, my pleasure. My and pleasure. Uh, yeah, keep up the good work. I love the idea of bringing hope to rheumatology. If I could leave everyone with parting words, it would be twofold. Number one, you are your only advocate, right? The best advocate that you have is you. And if you don't feel like you're being heard by your, your physician, the first thing I would do is share that with them. And the next thing I would do if they don't respond well is move on um, because there's too many interventions that can really help to change the course that you're on. And you really have to take the horse by the reins and jump in. So good luck. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Absolutely. SpondyCast was made possible by donations from the Spondylitis Association of America's individual members. Since our founding in 1983, the Spondylitis Association of America has been the face, voice, and leading nationwide nonprofit, educating, empowering, and advocating for people living with spondyloarthritis. Through our extensive work with patients, the medical community, and partners, we provide information and resources to help people impacted by the disease live better lives and champion research to find a cure.